11th week in the Gospel of Mark. And we are in chapter 3. We're going to take 10 verses in chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Now, this, at this point in Mark, because it moves so fast, we're already to uh, Jesus' ministry being wildly popular. He's traveling and, and preaching, and he's healing the sick, casting out demons. And the crowds were becoming so massive, things are getting dangerous at this point. So we estimate that these crowds, and we're told explicitly in some moments in, in, in Scripture, these crowds are in the tens of thousands of people that are coming out to hear Jesus preach. And they're, they're coming from all over the map, as we talked about last week, right? From the east of the Jordan, northern Israel, the deep south. They're coming from everywhere to hear Jesus preach. And so when he would engage them, he would do so on the shoreline near the Sea of Galilee because it was a logistical, he had logistical reasons for preaching on the, on the shoreline and healing people. So he could keep all the crowd in front of him, first of all, so that he could address them. But it was even becoming so dangerous because the crowds were so big that Peter would be waiting in a boat. Like in case, the, just so the crowds wouldn't crush him, he could at least get out into the water and get in the boat and be able to get away. Because everyone in all of Israel at this point, they all know who Jesus is. And they're all coming to, to hear him and to see what he's about. Everyone from the lowly leper who had no place in society to the Herodian, the aristocrat. That would be the, the noble people of Israel. Everyone has to have uh, an opinion on who Jesus is. Because that's what happens in society, right? When someone gets wildly popular, everyone has an opinion on this person. Everyone wants to learn enough to have a specific opinion. We do this still today when someone becomes wildly popular. Wasn't it just a, a year or two ago? <laughs> this is almost an embarrassing um, example to talk about, but it's just true of our culture. Remember when Kanye West came out with the Christian rap album, and he had every Christian on the planet Earth arguing whether or not he was actually a true Christian or not? Do you remember this? This was happening like a year or two ago. And so you would get on social media platforms, and literally everyone seemed to have an opinion as to if Kanye West was a Christian or not, because he suddenly had this rap album. And so you had the optimistic crowd that would come out and say, oh, this is, this is a modern-day Saul turned to Paul. Like, he has converted to Christianity, and he's going to take droves of people with him. This is amazing. And then you had the pessimistic crowd that I had an opinion about Kanye saying, this guy has literally made a living with publicity stunts. How could you be duped by this guy? Don't believe a word that he says. There's no way that the, you're exercising no discernment whatsoever. You can't possibly believe that Kanye is actually a Christian. I mean, I mean people would get like heated about this. Oh, you're just a hater. All right? And, and you're back and forth. And oh, you're just gullible. And so it was... I mean, I, I don't know if you can tell by my outfit. I couldn't tell you a single song that Kanye West sings. I, I, I don't know anything about Kanye West to, West to have an opinion on him whatsoever. Um, but it, I just thought it was both fascinating and yet embarrassing as to how compelled our culture became to have an opinion about this man and whether or not he was a true convert or, or not. But I think it's a lesson and how our, how our society and society then, just like now, we can, we, we can manufacture all of this distress and, and put a lot of pressure on people 
to, to have an opinion on someone, and there will inevitably be conflicting views when that, when that happens. And so that's just a, just a small glimpse of what must have been going on in Israel when, when the, the, the popularity of Jesus was just off the charts. Everyone knew who he was and at least a little bit about what he was doing. They had at least heard about Jesus, if not traveled a hundred miles to get to see Jesus. And so everyone began to formulate opinions about Jesus. They were demanding that you have an opinion about Jesus. What do you say? Who do you say that he is? Do you believe in these things? How is he able to do these miracles? Everyone is asking these questions of everyone and demanding that you have an opinion about him in Israel. And so you know, society couldn't deny the fact that there were massive crowds of tens of thousands of people following him around wherever he went. So society couldn't deny that these miracles were actually happening because tens of thousands of people were following him around and witnessing and experiencing themselves miracles. So they, so they couldn't be denied. And so society was hearing this message that accompanied all of these miracles and it was a unique message, a historic message. And so what do you think about Jesus? And so, well, to say that Jesus is still wildly popular today is an understatement, right? You can't find a country on the planet Earth that the gospel isn't being taught this morning, right now, all across the globe. And so it, it's still true today that because of how many people know uh, who Jesus is, and at least vaguely know of what he's done, everyone is like forced to have this opinion about Jesus. So what is your opinion about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What do you believe about him? And how does your, your life reflect that belief and that response? So in, in today's text, we're going to look at two responses. And I, I think that it's interesting, these two responses when we're looking at them, how they resemble how people still respond today. So maybe as we talk about these two responses, we're going to see a response from Jesus' own family, and we're going to see a response uh, from the scribes and their critique of, of Jesus and his ministry, and then we're going to hear, well, Jesus' response to all of them. And so maybe you can ask yourself today as we look through this text, where do you fit in to these responses? Let's look at Mark chapter 3 verse 20 and 21. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Oh man, there's an awkward response to the ministry of Jesus, his own family. We remember in the, in the immediate context, Jesus had just become frustrated with the crowds. He, he needed to get away it was becoming overwhelming. He was a little stressed. It was a little much for him, and so he needed to just kind of regroup. And so he went away up on a mountain. And, and, we, look, and we look in Luke's parallel, and we, and we see where he went up on that mountain specifically to pray. And then he gathered his 12 disciples and appointed them as apostles to give them authority to preach and gave them authority to do miracles so that his ministry would continue to expand and this, this gospel would continue to be carried out and made known in Israel. And so now they're back at Peter's house. This is back where Jesus healed the paralytic in Capernaum. 
Back at Peter's house, there's probably some patchwork on the roof where the paralytic was dropped down through the ceiling. They're just trying to get a meal after having gotten away. But when they're going back to Capernaum, everybody knows who Jesus is at Capernaum. This is, this is, they know the drill. Jesus is back. Jesus is co- he's, he's come back from the mountain. Let's go. So everyone is gathering around Peter's house to the point in which they couldn't even eat. Like they're just trying to sit down to have a meal. Now the last time, again, Jesus was preaching or teaching or existing in Peter's house. That's why they went to the shoreline, right? Because they're tearing up his house trying to get to Jesus. Now they're just having, trying to have a meal. And they're like, oh, they're going to start coming through the walls? I mean, this is how much pressure is building everywhere Jesus goes. It's like, he's in Capernaum, here we go again. And so his family is having like this intervention moment with him. Like clearly everyone is talking about Jesus. And so his own flesh and blood family have have decided to, to intervene and to talk to Jesus because it's out of concern for him, right? We're told that uh, later in this text and in, in later in, in Mark that his family uh, were his mother, Mary, and his brothers, his, which would be his younger half-brothers, right? And so Joseph and Mary went on to have many kids. Now let's talk about those family dynamics for a minute. Where is Joseph at this point in time? Why is it just Mary and her sons? Well, virtually everyone unanimously agrees in church history that by this point in time, Joseph is dead. And so he's mentioned in the, the, the story of Christ's birth, and then we don't hear any more about Joseph anymore. And so it's always been the case in church history and, and belief amongst Christians that by this point, Mary is widowed. And so Mary is with her other children, and, and so they have come to address Jesus, to seize him in this moment. That's the same word that you would use to, uh, for arrest. They're grabbing him. Are you out of your mind? Now, wait a second. Why, why would Mary be saying, are you out of your mind? Doesn't she know? Right? Like the song, Mary, did you know your baby boy one day walk on water? I, how much does she know? Did she know? Again, that's the, that's the song I hear every Christmas and I argue with it. Well, I don't think she did, and I'll tell you why. You know, I, let me think about this. Well, I, she had some concept, right? We have to, we have to consider the whole counsel of Scripture. So Mary miraculously conceived this, uh, the Holy Spirit miraculously conceived this, this baby in her womb. And so she, she hasn't forgotten about that at this point in time, right? She was visited by an angel. She, along with Joseph, gave Jesus his name because it means God saves and he's come to save his people from their sins. I mean, she absolutely understood that he is fulfilling his destiny at this point. But there is a motherly concern as things are escalating so quickly and and these crowds are getting so big, things are getting dangerous. The Herodians and the scribes and the whole country is talking about you, Jesus. Is my son safe? This is a motherly concern for her son. That's her baby. That's her baby. So she's grabbing him. What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? I mean, this is dangerous, Jesus. This is what any normal mother would do to have deep concern for their their baby boy and of course the younger half-brothers we have no reason to to believe that they had any other concern than what Mary had now we're actually told the names of some of Jesus 
younger half-brothers later in Mark, in Mark 6, verse 3. You got James, uh, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and it even mentions his sisters. So Joseph and Mary went on to have a bunch of kids just like everybody else back in the day, right? And so, and so his own flesh and bread, this is, this is their older brother who they were raised around. They love Jesus. He's family. Hey, man, things are getting, getting dangerous. This is, everybody's talking about you. It's not all, it's not all good. There's, there's a lot of conflicting opinions out there, Jesus. I, I can just imagine some of these conversations taking place. Like, hey, yeah, so a lot of people love you and are excited about this, but you're even conflicted about why people are coming to listen to you, right? Because he was frustrated with the crowds. And, and we're hearing things that, like, some people are out to just flat out destroy you we just love you. We just want to grab you and take you back to Nazareth where things are safe and everything's okay. Can we just do that right now? So you can imagine how this conversation went down. I think that, that, that response to Jesus, I think it kind of it resembles. Let me, let me carefully use that word. It resembles a response that I think we get from so many people today. That, you know, they're, they're totally on board with everything Jesus taught. They're on board with heading to church and hearing the gospel story and singing about the gospel and claiming to be a Christian and living in that sphere of reality. And they're all about it until it becomes uncomfortable. Until something's at risk. Until, until they're, they're confronted with the ramifications of following and living out this gospel message, right? People are, are completely okay with, Christian, with the Christian faith up until the point in which they start receiving flack for some of their beliefs. Up until the point in which people start to criticize some of the Christian beliefs that are, are in our faith. They're, at that point, they're like, mm, yeah, are, you, are you out of your mind? I, I don't know. Let's, let's maybe take a few steps back here. A lot of people are on board with the Christian faith until they have to deny themselves a specific sin that they just really, really enjoy, that they really feel strongly about. And maybe culture is totally on board with that sin too. And so they, they and once that collide, once those two worlds collide, they're like, oh, well, I mean, the cost is too high now. I mean, Jesus would openly teach his disciples all, all the time, like, hey, this is the narrow path. This is, not the, this is not the wide gate, right? This is, this is going to collide with the philosophies of the world. These two things don't go together. They're going to hate you. People are going to hate you for what you believe because they hated me first. Now, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And so I just think, like, things, for, when it comes to Jesus' family, things were getting complicated, there were, there were growing concerns, there was starting to be a risk here, a cost here, and so that's the point in which they were like, hey, just let's, let's tamper that down a little bit here. And, I, and I, again, it just kind of reminds me of a lot of the response, people that will grow up in church, and the minute they become an adult and they start to get some pushback, oh, wow, this is, this is hard, I have to think about this now. Uh, I don't want to tap out. You out of your mind? I'm not going to fit in. You out of your mind? I love that sin. Now, no doubt, uh, Mary and her children, they, they, they don't understand the, the, 
the full ramifications at this point of, of what's happening here in the life of Jesus. It hasn't fully unfolded yet, right? It was unfolding right before their eyes. But um, I, I, it just, it, it's almost kind of like, I, I think this response sometimes is like a polite response. It's considered polite. Like, hey, be a Christian, just don't get rowdy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't, it, it's a charitable denial, a, a charitable uh, rejection, I think, a lot of times. Uh, but there's other responses here, and this next response that we're seeing to Jesus is not so charitable. It's, it's incredibly rude. Check this out, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, uh, they are not so polite in their uh, remarks with Jesus, right? I mean, they're just coming out uh, and they're just saying, hey, this guy is just flat out wrong. They are fully anti-Jesus. They wanted it made known exactly how they felt about Jesus. And that it wasn't just enough for them to not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They wanted to make sure every single one of you also denied who Jesus said he was. And so they are very aggressive in their anti-Jesus feelings, right? And so they're trying to take as many people down their path as possible, and they do so with this very specific slam that would have made a lot of sense in their culture. They're saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, maybe your translation says Beelzebub. Um, this is because there's a little bit of um, differences in how it's spelled, because there's confusion on how exactly it was pronounced, and there's a little uncertainty as to the origin of this word. And it's because it's slang. And so, you know, anytime we have a slang word in culture, there's lots of reasons why that word came to be used the way that it is. This is kind of, a, this is a word that functioned like that in Jewish society back in this time. And so here's the most common belief, as there are a few different uh, ways we can think about this. Here's the most common belief. So have you heard in the Old Testament there's this false god named Baal or Baal, de depending on uh, who you're hearing pronounce that word, right? So there's this Old Testament false god, false god uh, Baal. And so what they did was they, 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 they created this slang word that kind of trashed that Old Testament false god. And, the, and it really, it literally means Lord of the Flies. That's what Beelzebul like literally means, Lord of the Flies. Maybe you've heard of the book, Lord of the Flies. And so this was, a, this was a slang term they used, Lord of the Flies, to trash that Old Testament false god. Because flies swirl around crap, right? <laughs> flies swirl around poop. You know, you go out in the cow pasture, you see the cow patty, and there's flies all over it. And so this Baal, he's Lord of the Flies. The flies love him. That was a way that they were saying he's crap. And so that slang term used to slam Baal, I keep pronouncing it in both ways, they basically used that by Jesus' day as a, as a name for Satan, Beelzebub, or Beelzebub. And so that he is Lord of the Flies because Satan is crap. And so they're saying Jesus is nothing more than a minion of crap. So this is a really big, I mean, for us, we read this, and, and it's, it's, it's not that offensive. In that day, they were being radically offensive. They were just calling him Lord Crap, basically. 
and you are, he's, okay, he's casting out demons, but he's, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so I think this tells us another thing. They were in quite the pickle, right? They, they weren't, their argument against Jesus wasn't, he's not really doing these things. Their argument against Jesus isn't, this is David Blaine tricking a bunch of people, or David Copperfield, depending on what generation you are. This isn't them denying what's actually happening. They can't deny what's actually happening, because tens of thousands of people are witnessing these things happening, and experiencing these things, and the people that are healed are, are, are giving their testimony all over the place. So they weren't denying that Jesus was actually doing these miracles, rather they were just trying to... Uh, and, and they were trying to discredit him. And so when he heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath right before their eyes, what do they say? How do they criticize him? You're breaking Sabbath law. You're healing on the Sabbath. Your healing on the Sabbath is work on a day of rest. How dare you, Jesus? And then whenever Jesus casts out a demon, they can't deny the fact that he cast the demon out. So what do they say to discredit him? Oh, well, he's casting out demons. By the power of Lord Crap. And so, <laughs> oh man. So yeah, this kind of, again, it, it kind of, it resembles how some people respond to the Christian faith still today. It resembles how some people talk about Jesus and it resembles how they reject him today. Because, you know, you, you can't deny all of the good that the Christian faith has done in our world and in societies around the globe, you can't deny it. I mean, you look at all the hospitals that have uh, crosses outside of them because Christians started them, and, and that's all over the globe. You think of all the schools that Christians have started and universities that exist today, even though they may not be Christian anymore, they're there initially because the Christians put them there. I mean, there's just a ton of, of good things. We could go on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and the, this message of hope that exists in the Bible, it's so good. It's just so helpful because it acknowledges all of the brokenness in this world. It's real about all the pain that we feel when we live in this world. And it's a promise. It's about a promise from God to fix all of that pain, to make it all new again and make it all good again. Just like we sang how we long for the day. That Jesus would return and make all things new again. We just, it's just such a message of hope. You can't deny the hopeful message that is in Scripture. But I think there are modern day scribes that come out of the woodwork that try to distort and discredit this message. And of course, they will use an equal and opposite argument that I just used. Oh, you want to talk about all the good Christian faith has done in this world? How about we talk about all the bad that the Christian faith has done in this world? How about the Crusades? People love to bring up the Crusades. Like they literally could not tell you one person or the name of any individual in the Crusades <laughs> or where the Crusades even happened on a map. But man, the Crusades, Christians killed all kinds of people. They don't know the historical context leading up to those moments. They couldn't tell you the historical context after that moment or in that moment. They couldn't tell you any of those facts. They just know that the Crusades, in our minds, that's a moment in time which, in which Christians killed a bunch of people, and therefore the Christian faith is bad. Gotcha. You know, credit God with all of this evil. And what about all the hypocrisy? People say that they're Christians. People say that they want to do good, but what do they do? They do bad. It's full of hypocrisy. This, 
this religion that you believe in, it's just like any other religion. It's just a man-made tool used to manipulate the masses. Congratulations, you are manipulated. And then they begin to, to create their own version of who's to blame in this world. Well, God's the one that has allowed all of this evil to take place. As a matter of fact, God must have been the one that caused all of this evil to take place. He is the villain, actually. The one you say is the hero is actually the villain. And aren't I so virtuous for pointing this out for you? And of course, that is the polar opposite of the message of the Bible, isn't it? The polar opposite of the message of the Bible, which, in which we all collectively are the ones who are evil. No one is righteous. Not one. Only God is righteous. We are the ones that have messed up this world, not God. right? But see, people take these messages and they twist them and they put their own spin on them and they accuse. And of course, they make these accusations while it's, it's self-righteousness at the same time. So Jesus, he, he, he feels these attacks coming from these critics they're, they're seeing what is good, and they're somehow finding a way to say it's bad. They're, they're literally able to see miracles. People healed of all sorts of different diseases. Lepers, a, a man with a withered hand. People being released from the demonization of, 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 of demons in that world in, the, in, in their time. And, and they, they literally find a way to discredit and turn what is righteous into something that is evil. Because we have such a knack for doing that. That is so human of them. That's what we do. So Jesus, he has a response. Some people respond to Jesus and they, it's a polite rejection. Eh, don't let this get too rowdy. Some people respond to Jesus and just say, no, you're evil and you're wrong. And then Jesus, he's going to stand up for himself here and he's going to actually explain how things actually are. Let's read his response here in verses 23 through 27. And he called them to him and said to, them in, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus just uses very basic, straightforward logic with them. Oh, so I'm casting out demons by the power of Lord Crap? Okay, well let's think about that for a minute. So Satan, so what you're saying is that Satan is now against Satan. And I, I'm, I'm his biggest tool to get rid of him and fight against his own legion of, of demons. And so uh, I am the evil in this world that's getting rid of evil. This makes no logical sense. I mean, just a very quick, straightforward, it, that, it, by your own argument, you're saying that Satan's kingdom is destroying itself through me. How can, how can Satan cast out Satan? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. He's just appealing to just basic logic right here. And then in verse uh, 27, in verse 27, he goes on to say, 
but no one can enter a man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And so what he's saying there is, here's how it actually is. This isn't Satan casting out Satan. That doesn't even make any sense. This is me plundering the house of the strong man because I have bound him. When I cast out those demons, Satan is that strong man. This is, he's the, 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 the prince of this earth, and, and, he, and he's, he rules this realm right here. I have entered my creation. I have entered this realm that he rules. He's the strong man here, and I am binding him every time that I cast out a demon because I have the authority to do so. I've come into his house. I'm binding him, and I am plundering his household. That is, I am redeeming my people, I am saving my people by bringing my gospel into his house, and there's nothing he can do about it because I have overcome him. That's what reality actually is. And this, of course, is the response that every true believer has to the gospel. They believe that this world is full of darkness and sin. That's because we're here. Mankind sinned, they rebelled. We continue to rebel. We continue to mess things up. But Jesus has entered this world and he has overpowered the condemning works of Satan and he is redeeming what is rightfully his for, from all eternity. And so what happens next? Now this is the passage we're going to study next. It's one of the most debated passages. You've got entire books that are written over these next couple of verses. And so I am going to oversimplify this, this next passage because honestly, and this is my heart, true heart of hearts, though it is a much talked about passage of scripture, I think it's so simple, it's complex. I think this is one of those scenarios. So I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to just kind of emphasize the simplicity of this argument and, and really, really avoid getting into the weeds. Um, because what he's saying next basically is if you're going to credit God with what's evil in this wor world and deny him the credit of what is right in this world, like what you're doing to me, you are passing the point of no return. You are rejecting him in a final way. Let's read 28 through 30. Truly, I say to you, now I want to stop there for just a second. In, in the Gospels, this is the first time it's happened in Mark. Truly, I say to you, in other, in other Gospels, you'll hear him say, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus starts a teaching with that phrase, he is emphasizing the importance of what he's about to say. This is like an exclamation point at the beginning of a sentence. Truly, I say to you, this is absolute truth. He goes on to say in, in, in verse 20, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So I don't want us, when we think of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, don't forget verse 28. Don't forget verse, don't, we read past verse 28 so hard and so fast to get to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He just said to these scribes, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. God will forgive anything. 
It doesn't matter what you've done. Isn't that such a refreshing verse? Don't skim over that verse so fast you don't read it and take it to heart. He'll forgive anything you've done. When I think of the laundry list of my sins and the growing list of my sins, what a relief it is that Jesus, after saying, truly I say to you, God will forgive anything. He is a forgiving God. He loves us and will forgive all sorts of blasphemies, all sorts of sins. Ah. What a glorious verse to read, right? There's nothing I can do that's too bad for God to overcome. But what's this eternal sin that he's talking about then? It kind of sounds like he'll say, oh, forgive all the sins except this one sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, I think the key to understanding that verse is very simply in verse 30, why, he, why was he saying this? What does it say in verse 30? Why was he saying this? Because they were saying he had an unclean spirit. The premise of their argument was that he had an unclean spirit. The premise of their argument that Jesus was evil was that the spirit inside of Jesus was evil. Therefore, everything he's doing is evil. But that's not true, is it? What's the spirit inside of Jesus? Well, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. When he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And then his ministry really began in that moment. He was driven out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he comes back and he starts doing miracles and preaching and teaching. And all of these incredible things start to happen in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were saying the source that he does all of these miracles and preaches this gospel with It's evil. It's evil. They were calling what was good evil. They were were identifying what was inside of Christ and crediting that with evil. Calling good evil and evil good. That is not where you want to be. That is not where you want to be. So Jesus... He's saying that if, if, you know, if, if you can be forgiven anything, but if you're calling the works of the Holy Spirit evil, you are rejecting the source of your forgiveness, the, the foundation upon which your forgiveness sits, right? It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lives this miraculous life, and that he lives, lives a sinless life, and that he, he died and rose again, and then ascended into heaven and is there intervening for us right now. He does this by the power of the Holy Spirit and then sends us his spirit to give us new life and to make us new creations in him and and so that we can believe and we can live this spirit-filled life. And so if you reject the Holy Spirit, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You are, that is the epitome of rejection. You are rejecting who God is, how he saves you. You are rejecting the salvation that he offers you through his son. And so by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you are passing the point of no return. Because there is forgiveness nowhere else. You can't get that kind of forgiveness anywhere else. That is how God forgives And so Jesus is making it very clear, if you reject God, you're rejecting his salvation. Now I know that we could really get into the weeds in this conversation. So where people go, and this is, it's amazing to me how many people know of this passage. Uh, You know, there's blasphemy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's the unforgivable sin. 
Well, it's, it's rejection of God. And it's amazing to me how many people are worried that they have committed the unforgivable sin. Have you committed the unforgivable sin? I, I've literally said across from people at lunch dates and then and saying, you know, I, I, I'm just worried. I think I, w- I was a non-believer for so, wrong, for so long and I, I, I just, I, I told people how evil I thought Christianity was for so long. I, I feel like I committed this eternal sin. It's, it's right here in the text. I rejected God. And of course I would say, but you didn't because you're here right now and you're believing and you're worried about this, right? We all become a believer at some point. And so if you are worried if you have committed this eternal sin, you just have to ask yourself, how are you responding to the message of Jesus Christ? How do you respond to Jesus? Is it a polite denial? I'm on board until this gets hard. I'm cool. I'm cool with Jesus. I'm cool with the church until society starts trashing me and making, it, making me feel silly or coming down on me or not accepting me. Is it a, is it a polite rejection or is it an aggressive rejection? I've heard this gospel message, I understand what it's saying, and I adamantly believe that it's false. Well, you've, you're passing the point of no return. Or do you believe that Jesus has entered his creation, he, he has bound the strong man, and he is redeeming your soul for eternity, and that he can overcome any sin in your life? And so how you respond to Jesus, if you're worried that you have committed this unforgivable sin, you have not committed this unforgivable sin. Ongoing unbelief, though. Ongoing unbelief and rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, leads to, not, to your sins not being forgiven. That's how Scripture works. That's how we're told the gospel message works. And so today, I would just encourage you, think about how you are responding and respond to the truth of Jesus, not just with thought, not just with a mere quick attendance to church, but with a changed heart and life. Think about those areas in your life in which there needs to be more repentance. Think about the, how you can connect more to his mission and to his gospel and to, and to living out his teachings in your life. And you can live with confidence when you do that as you get deeper into the gospel you have more assurance that all your sins are definitely forgiven because it all comes back to Christ and his perfect life and his atonement on the cross. That's what we're going to go into next, into a time of communion. And so listen, this is not, communion is never a high-pressure sales pitch in which we're keeping track of who's taking it and who's not. It's just that every one of us in here are dealing with sin. And when we come to church, we need to come back to the gospel each and every Sunday So that we can remind ourselves we are not lost forever. We are not a lost cause. Because through Christ, I can be forgiven all my sins, no matter how bad they are. And so if that is your belief today, if that, then then respond in a time of communion. Take that bread to remember it's his righteousness that makes me righteous. It's his atonement that atones for my sins. And, and live in that truth and be transformed by that truth and nourished by that truth with us collectively. If that's not where you're at, you can, you can abstain from this time. Matter of fact, if that's not what you believe, I would encourage you especially don't take communion 
It's, it's communion that is just for believers. And, it's, and we've come here to be built up and rejuvenated and renewed. And this is how that we do that. So let's all pray and then we'll prepare our hearts for a time of communion. Lord, again, we thank you for this moment in scripture, this confrontation between you and the scribes and even your own family. Uh, Lord, there are so many different ways that people respond to you. There are so many different ways that we still observe in this world that people respond to you. And Lord, we just pray that we would have the response of a changed heart, that by your grace and through your spirit, we would respond the way that we need to, that we would respond with this understanding that we, we, we don't have what it takes to be right with you. You have what it takes for us to be right with you. And so, Lord, bless us in this time of, of communion, Lord, that we can rest in that truth and that we don't have to live, af live afraid or live with this fear that we've, we've gone too far, we've done too much, there's no way I can be saved. There's always a way I can be saved, Lord, because you are an all-sufficient Savior. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.